Thank you so much for coming. Ooh. This is a very live mic. I'm in the opera house, I hear. <laughs> and first and foremost, thank you so much to Jody and to Andrea and to the staff here for making me feel so welcome. I have for many years been hearing things about the Vermont Studio Center from former colleagues, from former students, from other writers I've known who've gone through here. And it seems like such a wonderfully beautiful and productive place. And uh, I'm really enjoying myself and looking forward to the next few days. I think I'll be getting to talk to some of you about your work, which I'm looking forward to. And um, thanks also to Ebenezer Books, which um, has been so generous to come here and sell books. And it was, um, I was pretty delighted. I was in your store this afternoon and it's, it's, a, it's a great store. So um, thank you to all of you. All right, um, as Jody mentioned, I'm going to read one or two chapters from the book that I'm working on. And I'm gonna start with an excerpt or a chapter that was published as a, as a standalone short story. And I should say that the content of some of the work in this book is on the graphic side. Um, so I'll, I will just mention that. This story is called Hippocrates. And, okay. For the sake of propriety, although it was far too late for propriety, when I was sent away from Jaffna to Colombo, I traveled in the company of another girl. She, unlike me, had done nothing wrong. And when the train jostled us so that our sweaty wrists touched, she jerked her body away from mine and I thought I deserved it. We had known each other since we were very young and for many years had touched each other in the familiar way of friends and schoolmates and neighbors, but that did not matter now. When I had returned to Jaffna, no one in our village had asked me about what I had done while I was with the tigers. They had assumed, and rightly, I thought then, that I was apart from them, and that I could not return to the life to which I had been born. No one spoke of where I had gone or with whom I had traveled. This was not from any code of silence, but rather a sense of futility, there was no point in discussing what had already happened. We had reached a moment at which living took so much effort that no one could spare the breath to speak to me. I understood this and was not offended. Although I was not myself a tiger, I had been with them, and I had left them. There was nothing for me in the village now, although it was still the place I knew and loved the best. My uncle came to receive me at Colombo Fort Station, the other girl separated from me without saying goodbye, as though we had not walked down the same dusty roads to the same primary school. I watched her walk towards the rows of three-wheelers, moving, like me, into a world of strangers. Even my uncle was a stranger. I had never met him, although he lived in the same country as me and was my mother's brother. Still, I knew him immediately as I stepped off the train platform because he held himself in the same way as my mother. He looked as though he never hurried, but nevertheless he moved quickly through the crowd. He had not brushed his hair and seemed not in the least embarrassed to be himself. His peculiarly large hands reached for my suitcase before he even said hello to me. His hands met mine before his eyes met mine. And this, too, was like my mother. He did not wish to speak plainly. You look like your mother, he said to me in Tamil. If he had said this to me later, Perhaps now I might have replied, so do you. But I was a girl, and I was 19, and he did not expect to have a conversation with me. 
He did not want my opinions, and I did not want to give them to him. We were to be relatives only. He wanted to exchange facts, and I did not know that this was the beginning of my exit from that life, that he was to be one of the last people I met who knew what my mother looked like. Did you eat? He asked. I had something on the train, I said. Amma will have some tea for you when we reach Walawatha, he said. You must be tired. He did not wait for me to confirm this, but turned and pushed his way into the crowd. I followed him through the train station and out the other side to the street. I was not slow, but I had not yet learned to navigate the crowds and foulness of a city. The people who moved for him pushed back at me, perhaps sensing my vulnerability and strangeness. By the time I caught up with him, he was waving to the driver of a big black car a few meters away. The driver drove from Fort to Walawate, my uncle's neighborhood, with the windows open. Even if they had been closed, I would have known that Colombo was not as clean as home, that it was not quiet like Jaffna. Breathing felt hard and my ears were tired from hearing so much. I felt dirty. I blew my nose and lifted my handkerchief, blackened with soot and exhaust. My uncle did not talk to me and so I looked out the window. Everything passed by, the lights and architecture of a city, and I did not see it. My eyes were still full of Jaffna. I wanted my brothers, my brothers who were gone, and I wanted my mother and my father, even though they did not presently want me. This man, my uncle, looked like my family, but he did not know me. He did not want to know me, and the feeling of being surrounded by strangers made a pocket of pain inside my chest. The car stopped, and the driver came round and opened the door for me. I got out, and my uncle was already up the path of the house, moving deftly around a small barking dog. A hunched, wrinkled woman at the door took the bag from him and smiled deferentially at me, holding her hand out in a gesture of welcome. Come, she said. My uncle vanished into the back. I stood by the door, removing my shoes with unnecessary care. I listened for and then could hear the car pulling out of the driveway. Sit, sit, the woman said, smiling, and then she too disappeared down a side hallway, pulling the suitcase along. The chair I sat in was very old, with the wooden bones of the frame pushing through the upholstery on the arms. The floor was bare and warm, its boards smoother against my toes than the concrete of my family's house in Jaffna. The walls were crowded with pictures, and I noticed, finally seeing Colombo for a moment, that some of them were of me. I was so small in some of the pictures that I did not remember being myself in them. You look all grown up, my grandmother said and I stood up suddenly so fast that I almost knocked the tea tray from her hands. She studied herself and put the tray down on a table. Although my uncle had referred to her, I had almost forgotten she would be here. She looked much older than when she had last visited Jaffna, five years earlier. My mother's mother was a stunningly ugly woman, with a long, skinny black birthmark running down the left half of her face, and the milky blue rings of her sclera showing around her eyes. I was old enough now not to be afraid of her ugliness and to know that later I could be her and that in fact the odds were in favor of that. She was the first ugly person I had ever loved, although she would not be the last. At 19, I was young enough to value beauty and old enough to know that certain types of it would die while other kinds would grow stronger. On this day, I saw for the first time that I was taller than her. I was tall for a woman anyway, and she was not short. That height ran in our family. Her face, paler now, told me how I would look, 
when the softness had been stripped from my face. Her hands were still unwrinkled, and when she reached up to pat me on the cheek, I recalled that she coated them with oil every day to keep them that way. Her sole vanity. We kissed each other twice, once on each side of the face, the way we had always greeted each other. She talked to me while I had tea and gave me supper. Like my uncle, she did not expect me to respond to what she said, but unlike my uncle, she loved me, and I liked to listen to her. Afterwards, she put me to bed as though I were still a small child. I let her. To be treated like a child for an hour comforted me, although even now, I am ashamed to admit that to myself. When I woke up, I could hear the bells of a temple ringing in the distance. I wondered what the temples in Colombo were like. They could not be as big as our temples in Jaffna, I thought. The gods of Colombo must be cramped and noisy, sweaty and smoky, elbow to elbow. I could hear someone else moving around towards the back of the house in the kitchen, the sounds of a kettle being settled onto a stove. I had already learned to count on the sounds people make and to consider them as markings like fingerprints for the ears. It was not the sound of the servant woman. It was my uncle's quiet, quick step. I put a house coat on over my nightdress and went out into the corridor and back towards the kitchen very slowly so as to not disturb his routine. Halfway there, I heard him turn the radio on. The voice of a news announcer crackled out into the morning. I heard him very clearly. I heard what he said and then I forgot to be quiet and ran, the pounding of my feet waking up the house. The voice on the radio said what had happened was this. A pregnant woman had gone to a government office building in Colombo. She had ridden the elevator to the top floor of this building, which was an important building that I did not know, having arrived too recently to understand the whereabouts of importance in the city. At the top floor, she got off and asked to see a man in charge, whose office was very large and had a wooden desk. She told them that she had an appointment. The secretary checked the records and saw that this was true. The voice on the radio did not say this, but I imagined it to be so. The woman was seated and offered tea, which she accepted with milk and plenty of sugar. She was from Jaffna. She liked a lot of sugar in her tea. She waited for 10 minutes, and then when the secretary called her, she picked up her bag and rose from the chair to be escorted into the office. The man shook her hand and called her madam, respectfully, although she was not very old, perhaps no older than her mid-twenties. Her pregnancy was obvious, but this did not desexualize her in his eyes. She was a very beautiful woman, wearing a large green silk tunic and trousers that brought out the fairness of her skin and the darkness of her hair. She was wearing a red potdu between her eyebrows, the mark of a married woman, although she was not actually married. She shook his hand back and smiled at him disarmingly. The voice on the radio only said, she pressed a button to detonate the primary bomb she was carrying. I suppose that was the part that mattered. I want you to understand. I was not born to fight for a political cause. I did not feel chosen. And this woman was not born this way. She was not chosen. She was born in a village in Jaffna, and soldiers raided her house, and she was gang-raped, and she watched the men who raped her kill her four brothers. I want you to understand this is not an excuse or an explanation. It is a fact. She was not born to walk into an office building on an ordinary day, a day when the sun was shining and three-wheelers cluttered the streets to try to detonate a bomb. 
And in fact, later, the forensic said that was what had happened. She tried to detonate a bomb. But she failed because it had been built improperly. I want you to imagine this as I did when I heard that. The bomb blew up, but not completely, not enough to kill them quickly, as she had intended. The first small, potent blast caught her and the man together, and with her right arm gone and his left leg severed beneath the knee, they looked like one person dancing. Her hair fell out of its pins into his open mouth. Two building security guards burst into the room after only a few moments, and she screamed, and they pointed their guns at her. She held up like a prize the other bomb, the auxiliary fuse and its detonator, and shouted in Tamil. The man reached out to wrestle with her, screaming also, but in Singhalese, and the guards aimed for her. Their training was not good enough for this. If they shot the bomb, it would blow up. If they shot the woman, she would probably manage to detonate it anyway. They aimed for the woman. They fired. They missed. They aimed again, the man shouting again, trying to push her between himself and the guards. And this time, one of them hit her in the shoulder. Blood bloomed on the green silk. The other one aimed and shot her again. The bullet pierced her neck, and as she reached up to hold the wound, she let go of the other detonator. She died, and she killed other people, and she did not mind, and in this she was different from me forever. My grandmother found me vomiting into the toilet. She came behind me and held my hair. What is it, she asked me, are you sick? I wiped my mouth. I did not look up and I did not answer. I vomited again, but there was nothing left in my stomach. I looked down at my stomach and thought of Savi's stomach, the rounded belly of pregnancy. Some female suicide bombers use pregnancy as a disguise, not only because it is easy to conceal explosives, but also because it weakens the resolve of police officers to see a mother. Each of them, of course, has his own. A transgression against a mother is a universal transgression. When a man treats a mother kindly, he imagines that somewhere else, someone is getting up on a train to offer a seat to his own mother, or perhaps helping her to carry her groceries from the market. He is remembering what his wife looked like in her first trimester. He is thinking of his younger siblings, or perhaps his own children. He is thinking of life, and of repetition, and of things happening again, as they have happened to him. He is not thinking that anyone carrying a belly that size, that shape, would carry death. This is why it is the best disguise. And that is why I was sick. I knew that the woman in the office building who had ridden the elevator to the top floor must be Savi. Because the voice on the radio had said that, they had been able to tell the, that the bomber's pregnancy was not a disguise, but real. I knew how she had become pregnant. I had had to tell her that she was and I knew the bomber had to be her. Anyone but Savi would have faked it. I had not seen Savi, of course, in several months, almost exactly the amount of time it takes to train with the Black Tigers, to rehearse a scenario like the one she had executed, to grow a pregnant belly into a more pregnant belly. I had met her when I treated her for injuries at a medical tent outside one of the rebel camps. She was not a tiger then. She had shown up and asked for a woman, quite calmly, although her nose was obviously broken and one of her ears was torn. She was about my age. She had wound her long skirt between her legs and around her waist and gripped it tightly, as though it were all that, were hold that was holding her together. 
I had seen some older women in the village do this. People whispered that they had had so many children that their wombs were falling out. But I knew that this was not her situation. She did not tell me what had happened to her. The sentry who had brought her in did that, so that she did not have to repeat herself. He had known her from his village, from before the soldiers had come to keep peace and to rape women, and he spoke more calmly and professionally about what had happened to her than I could have managed myself if I had already known her. One of her dead brothers had been his classmate. She was the first rape victim I had ever treated, and so I remember it clearly, especially because now, as an emergency room physician here, oceans away from those medical tents, I perform rape kits all the time. Back then, in tiger territory, treating girls from the villages, I did not have rape kits. I did not know that there was an order, a procedure, to the cataloging of a body that has suffered this most particular trauma. I did not know that there is a script of things that are proper to say and to do. This was what our mothers had warned us about, men and their desires, men and their wills, men and their bodies encroaching on ours. Some man had taken everything inside her house that was sacred. Some man had taken everything inside her that she thought sacred. She was wrong, of course. She had not lost her value. But we were not in a world that knew that. Even I, the medic, the half-doctor, did not know enough to say that. I was too young and stunned, unrolling gauze and tapping alcohol gently onto it to clean her face. Not yet a doctor, I already knew bones. I could appreciate this face, or what this face had been, until very recently. I could see in the wreckage of its topography where its lines had fallen before. The high, shattered cheekbone, the formerly slender nose, the bloodied row of teeth, the small red tongue, which she had bitten deeply. She had long eyes with very fine lashes, eyes that stared at me almost without blinking. She was unusually fair-skinned, a coveted marker of beauty except in this time when coveted markers of beauty made women targets. I felt suddenly grateful for my own dark face, mannish bearing and awkward unfeminine height. After giving her brief history and her name, the sentry left us. The tent was big enough for only 20 patients. Although some of the people I treated were civilians, most of my patients were fighters. They were hit by bullets or perhaps shrapnel. Most, both civilians and fighters were sometimes captured and tortured by the army. I fixed them up and generally sent them back out. Few of them stayed with me for any extended period. Now, the tent was nearly empty. I took her to the far end where I had her lie down on a sheet on the ground. I knelt beside her. I am sorry there is not anything better, I said. She, didn't, she did not answer, but I heard her moan quietly as she lowered herself down. I gave her some painkillers, a morphine injection. Mercifully, we had some left and it was easy to find a vein. I cleaned her surface cuts and abrasions, but I did not bother to save and bag the evidence as I would have done today. I left the blood under her fingernails. I untangled a long black hair from her clenched right fist and threw it away. It would not have done any good to keep it. Then I lifted her knees so that her ankles were flat on the ground and unwound the skirt, exposing her. All right, I said, but this was just as much to reassure myself as her. I had hoped that the morphine would help her go to sleep, to forget that I was retracing the path of violation but she stared dry-eyed up at the ceiling of the tent as I examined her. The men had torn her. Her raped body had ripped as though it had undergone a hellish labor. 
I wondered if I could stand to sew this most private wound together, and then, with a sudden rush of something that was not quite terror, I knew that I could. The knowledge was terrible, and to keep my grief for her, for us, to myself, I folded my lips together. This is going to hurt you more, I said. It doesn't matter now, she said. I offered her more morphine, but she only looked away. There was nothing to wait for. I lit the match to sterilize the first needle. I wished then, as I do now, that I could have held her hand, but I needed both of mine for this. Afterwards, I let her lie there for an hour, but I did not see her sleep. When I returned with another suture kit for her ear and the plaster for her nose, I had her sit up. When I tilted her head away from me so I could see the ear in the waning light, she opened her mouth and started talking. I had four brothers, she said. I hesitated before I spoke, but then, I had four brothers too, I said, swabbing her ear with cotton. What do they do to yours, she asked me. I dipped the needle in alcohol and lit a match to sterilize it. The army killed one of my brothers, I said, the eldest. The second one was a tiger. They buried him at Kopai. The third has gone overseas. And the fourth one, my younger brother, he killed himself. The army killed all four of my brothers, she said. I know, I said, I'm very sorry. I inserted the needle. She had made no noise before, but now she hissed at the pain. Do you want the morphine, I asked? No, she said. I'm feeling something, you know? I want to know what is happening. If the pain goes away, then that might be worse. She was right. Pain informs. Pain draws a map. Doctors resolve to relieve pain, but pain is information. And to lose it is to lose something valuable. Pain is useful, even as a distraction. If it hurts, it is there. And if your body hurts, then your mind is occupied and cannot think too deeply about what has happened to you. I held the pieces of her earlobe together and tried to make the stitches small. I do not know why I thought about making her scar as small as possible. It should have been obvious to me that she no longer cared about the evidence of damage. But perhaps that was part of my job, to care on her behalf. Am I bleeding inside, she asked. No, just outside, I said. Her bruises were beginning to color, the dappled plums of swelling standing out on her forehead and cheeks. It hurts when I breathe, she said. Her ribs were probably fractured. I picked up the morphine syringe again. I am afraid of falling asleep, she said. Talk to me, I said. She talked about her brothers, and I did not listen to her. I thought, instead, about my own. We did not know where Thialin was buried, but a neighbor had told us that he had been taken into a detention center with a classmate of his, a man whose death had been confirmed. Valen's grave at Kopai was marked with the name of our village and the date of his death, but not the date of his birth. None of those stones had the dates of birth. My mother said the tigers did not want to remind people how young some of the rebels were. And Aaron was gone, spirited out of the country by an old professor who had seen that his prized student's engineering intelligence would go to ballistics and weaponry if he stayed. Selin had joined the Tigers, only to bite his cyanide capsule, not at a moment of torture, but in a moment of loneliness. Some people told us he had died fighting, but one of his friends had come to us and told the truth. 
Savi was starting to speak slower, her voice slurring from the morphine, and I wished that I could share it, that I could lean over, exchange the syringe, and pump my own arm full of sleep, that I could lie down next to her on the sheet, that we could both close our eyes and not worry. She was beautiful, and she was shorter than me, but we were not so different. Two girls from villages in Jaffna, each of us with four brothers, gone. What about their bodies, she said. What will happen to their bodies? What will my parents do? Go to sleep for now, I said. She sobbed suddenly and finally, a dry, sharp sob that sounded almost like a cough. She closed her eyes, but I stayed awake by her for a long time. I was grateful that day that I had been there to treat her. I had gone to the tigers because of my belief that everyone deserved medicine. Still, treating them felt like wading into swampy territory. This felt different. It felt like pure medicine, medicine the way I had dreamed of it as a child. Sitting with her in the tent at that moment, I thought that finally I had a patient whose treatment itself held no consequences, a patient who could go back to her village and lead a life, a damaged life, but a life made slightly more bearable by what I had done. I thought, truly, that someday we might both be able to return to the places where we had been born. I did not know then that I would leave. I did not know that she would go into that building, that she would ride the elevator to the top floor. <laughs>